Good morning. Welcome to With God at Dawn. It's time for our next chapter of The Golden Chain by Albert Olison. We're at chapter 9, and to refresh your memory, this book is broken up into three sections. The first eight chapters were about man's predicament. We're now switching to our relationship to Jesus, the next five chapters. And the title of our chapter today is, What is Conversion? After having considered some of the fundamentals of the plan for man's restoration, let us think of the series of steps that we must take in order to receive the great provision. While the plan of redemption was made certain by the death of Christ, the effect of that plan upon our lives depends upon our relation to it. In the key verse, John 3.16, we come to the words that whosoever believeth in him, unlimited in its scope, this phrase includes all mankind in whatever condition they may find themselves, poor or rich, strong or weak, educated or illiterate, white, black, brown, yellow, all are included and urged to look to Calvary, where the love of God is fully displayed in the depth of his Son. What must I do to be saved? The complete answer in simple form is found in the story of that repentant thief who died on the cross beside Jesus. In the last hour of his life, salvation for him consisted in three things that he did, the basic requirements for you, for me, whatever our lot or privilege. First, the thief admitted his sins and sincerely repented of them. No man can evade that step, and without it, heaven is barred to every man. Second, he believed that Christ was able to save him, and he cried out to him for help. This, too, must be our experience, for while his mercy is extended to all, it is received only by those who earnestly implore it. Third, he proved his faith by his works in that he openly acknowledged Christ and rebuked his sinful companion for scoffing. So are we required to prove that our faith is vital and honest by our actions? Notice that the thief depended wholly upon the merits of the Savior for his salvation. The life and character of the thief were far from perfect, yet he was counted worthy of receiving eternal life. We are in the same condition as this sinful brother, and our redemption depends upon exactly the same relationship to God's plan. Our pitiful rags of personal righteousness avail us nothing. Only Christ provides us eternal life as a gift. Let us suppose that by some chance the thief had come down from the cross and lived a normal life. He would have needed to enlarge and expand the same three requirements as long as he lived. Since he died soon after his conversion, he did not pay tithe or keep the Sabbath. He was never baptized. Yet if he had lived, those evidences of faith would have been required as a natural demonstration of his belief. He would have been expected to form a good character to resist temptation, and to prove his faith by obedience and good works. 
as long as he lived, the three primary principles would have been the guiding factors in his life. That which is known as present truth has varied in some respects through the centuries, but the essentials of the gospel have remained the same. Some particular points were emphasized in certain ages and among some peoples, but the basic truth concerning man's sin, the need for repentance, and the power of a living faith, they've never changed. The coming of the flood was present truth in Noah's day, but he preached repentance. Yet forty days was present truth when Jonah warned Nineveh, but with the threat was the call to repentance. While the intricate ceremonies of the Jewish nation no longer are required, yet the simple truth set forth in the temple service remain. And if the truth today is pointed with the Sabbath and the message of the second coming, the foundation of Christianity is still repentance, belief, and proof of faith. We believe there are special doctrines to be emphasized at specific times. And we must remark in passing that a man or movement can never in any age lower the special banner that God gives to a movement as a rallying point for that age. The remnant church is given the message of the Sabbath, the judgment, and the coming of the Lord to accent the need for repentance. We dare not lay aside the basic principles for other objectives, however proper and worthy. Previously, we found that by inheriting Adam's fallen nature, we received the traits and failings that are the outgrowth of selfishness and pride. And we say with Paul, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. That's Romans 7.19. We sense a voice speaking gently to our wandering hearts. The very first reaching out of the heart after God is known to him even before the prayer is uttered or the yearning of the heart made known. Grace from Christ goes forth to meet the grace that is working on the human soul. That can be found in Christ's Object Lessons, page 206. This is the first step toward Christ, and we must admit our sin and realize that we have a sinful nature. We know that our wishes and imaginations turn naturally toward evil, but we long for a change. Our mistakes and shortcomings have affected others, and we regret the wrong influence we've had. We think of the times we willingly put our feet in the way of evil and encouraged others to do so. The voice that speaks to our hearts shows us our condition, and we hear the gentle invitation. Our hearts are broken. We repent of our sins and desire salvation. Thus we have taken the first step toward redemption. The second step is progressive. We're in a fearful predicament, for we wish to break the chains of our habits and associations, but they seem to hold us all the firmer. In despair, we turn our eyes to Jesus, the one who felt the power of all the inclinations that torture us, yet who conquered every temptation. We cry out to him for help, and he sends deliverance. The chains are broken, the bonds of sin fall away. We still walk in enemy territory, but the shackles are now gone. Now we have taken the second step. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Revelation 21.6 This promise is only to those that thirst. None but those who feel their need of the water of life and seek it at the loss of all things else will be supplied. That can be found in the Great Controversy, page 540. 
What is it that we obtain in this second step toward salvation? We know there's a change in the life, but in what way? Never can we safely put confidence in self or feel this side of heaven that we are secure against temptation. Those who accept the Savior, however sincere their conversion, should never be taught to say or to feel that they are saved. This is misleading. Everyone should be taught to cherish hope and faith. But even when we give ourselves to Christ and know that he accepts us, we're not beyond the reach of temptation. Christ Object Lessons, page 155. There is in this life spiritual deliverance from the power of our fallen nature. There is no surcease from the temptations of Satan, but there is protection from the power of those influences. And as long as we live, the enemy will continue to tempt us through our sinful nature, but we may be emancipated from the domination of these two forces. In the exact proportion that we surrender to the power that Christ supplies, all who would be saved must submit to the working of this power. That can be found in Christ's Object Lessons, page 97. Conversion is a supernatural work, bringing a supernatural element into human nature. We may leave off many bad habits. For the time, we may part company with Satan. But without a vital connection with God, through the surrender of ourselves to him, moment by moment, we shall be overcome. The Desire of Ages, page 324. The protection from the power of Satan and strength to rise above our fallen nature depends upon two things, the depth and the constancy of our surrender. The rich young ruler who came to Christ as an example of surrender, which lacked depth, he he refused to go all the way in love and surrender to God's will. Solomon is an example of surrender that lacked constancy. He fell into the abomination of the heathen in the prime of life, because he did not maintain the constancy of his early devotion. The degree and the steadfastness of our submission to God's power are vital. Conversion is not the annihilation of our human nature and its woes, but the implanting of a counter-principle in our present faculties. Did you hear that? Implanting of a counter-principle in our present faculties. When truth is implanted in the soul, the natural inclinations are softened and subdued. New thoughts, new feelings, new motives are implanted. Man is not endowed with, I'm sorry, man is not endowed with new faculties, but the faculties he has are sanctified. That's Christ Object Lessons, pages 98 and 99. Those who have a shallow conversion do not experience a genuine reformation. In a general way, they acknowledge their imperfections, but they do not give up their particular sins. With each wrong act, the old selfish nature is gaining strength. And that would be Christ Object Lessons, page 48. In our garden, we enjoy the exquisite blooms from grafted rose bushes. Their beauty and perfume are a delight to the senses, but frequently the cold winter destroys the growth above the graft, and the wild root shows itself luxuriant but untamed and primitive. In like manner... It is possible for the graces which have been grafted upon the wild root of our human nature by conversion to be frozen by spiritual indifference until the wild growth again dominates the life that once promised so much beauty of Christian grace. The spiritual influences which enter our lives must not be allowed to perish from the lack of protection or as a result of careless inattention. If watered, cultivated, and cherished, they will take deep root in the life, and bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. 
The adversary is quite willing that a newly converted person shall have an uplift of spiritual feeling. It is his wish that the believer feel that he will never fall again. The enemy waits patiently for the reaction, intending in a moment of crisis to apply the full pressure of temptation. Then if the Christian yields, he suggests, put your conversion was insincere and a failure. Therefore, let us know for a certainty that the soul is never safe from falling in this life. We deal with facts, not fantasies. There are the valleys of temptation as well as the hills of high spiritual emotion. The new birth consists in having new incentives, new desires, new ambitions planted in our present nature. These spiritual forces will control our nature until the day of final regeneration when God will remove the weak nature. The struggle for conquest over self, for holiness in heaven, it's a lifelong struggle. That can be found in Testimonies, Volume 8, page 313. His grace alone can enable us to resist and subdue the tendencies of our fallen nature. He who has determined to enter the spiritual kingdom will find that all the powers and passions and unregenerate nature backed by the forces of the kingdom of darkness are arrayed against him. Each day he must renew his consecration. Each day do battle with evil old habits, hereditary tendencies to wrong, will strive for the mastery, and against these he is to be ever on guard, striving in Christ's strength for victory. That can be found in the Acts of the Apostles, page 477. When a person is converted, his spirit, aim, and purpose are transformed. The Christian life is not a modification or an improvement of the old, but a transformation of nature. There is a death to self and sin and a new life altogether. The Desire of Ages, page 172. And though a man turn his face toward the holy city, it does not mean that he's already at his journey's end. There are mountains and swamps to cross, scaring, searing heat and numbing cold to endure, wild beasts to avoid, and veils that tempt to forgetfulness. The allegory of Pilgrim's Progress is repeated in the life of every person who hopes to reach heaven and the hardships of the way are not imaginary. Conversion implies a change of direction in the life. When a sinner turns about, he is forced to retrace his steps. Quite often, there will be mistakes to make, right? Faults to confess, restitution to make, errors to correct. These are the visible evidences of repentance, and they show the direction in which we are traveling. We have not reached heaven yet, but at least we are on our way. If we're tempted to lose patience with ourselves and each other, we can remember that we all have the same foe to fight. Conversion is the beginning of a process. It's intended to continue during our whole life. And when the Spirit of God takes possession of the heart, it will transform the life. Sinful thoughts are put away. Evil deeds are renounced. Love, humility, and peace take the place of anger, envy, and strife. Joy takes the place of sadness, and the countenance reflects the light of heaven. No faith, no one sees the hand that lifts the burden or beholds the light descend from the courts above. The blessing comes when by faith the soul surrenders itself to God. Then that power which no human eye can see creates a new being in the image of God. And that can be found in the Desire of Ages, page 173. All right, my friends, let's have a little prayer and close for the day. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have given us a plan of salvation that you have given us a way to come to you for the help and aid we need so that we can live a victorious life. 
Help us to realize that it is not ultimate perfection that you seek, but obedience. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, my friend. I will see you in the morning with a different study.